Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Thank you, worship guys and, and Cece. Thank you. Uh, good morning. It's good to be back. Thanks for the week off. Got to see my daughter up in New York City. It's good times. Um, hey, we're going to be back in our, uh, the book of Mark. Let me uh, start off by telling you a, a long time ago, 25 years ago, 26 years ago, I was married seven years, and um, I got to tell you, the first five were pretty hard. Okay, but the last two of those seven, things were working pretty good for us, and, and then Melinda started saying, you know, I feel like we've kind of plateaued, we've planed out, you know, I want to go deeper with you, and... I, I kept saying, oh, well, see, there's the, there's the problem with that because I'm a shallow person. And so this is it. You know, I'm just like, that's, this is it. Seven years, you got everything you're going to get. And uh, it was very frustrating for her, far more than it was for me. For me, it was threatening. And it just so happened that uh, we had brought in one of my uh, old faculty professors from, from seminary to do these workshops, these marriage workshops that teach you how to talk to each other, which was very uh, helpful for so many other people. And <clears throat> we had him over for dinner, which was the point, I think, of the whole uh, seminar in the first place. And, and he helped us kind of work through some of, some of the problems. And he said to me, I, it seems like you're afraid. I said, yeah, I'm living like a telltale heart sort of experience with her because you know, before I was a follower of Christ, I did, some, I did a lot of terrible things that I, I have t- tremendous regret for, but there's also a lot of shame that's over, overreaching in all of that. And, and, you know, guilt and shame, they're twin, aren't they twins? It seems like they're twins anyway. They're, they're always accompanying each other in all of my emotions towards her. And so whenever she says, I want to go deeper. I want to have, you know, know more about you. All I'm hearing is she wants to hear all these gross things of shame. Run. Just, just run. There's still time. And so he, he said, okay, listen. He says intimacy uh, requires just two simple things. Right? One is experiences together. And two is uh, real, deep, gut-wrenching, scary honesty. That's, that's how relationships go deep. That's how they work, okay? Life together, right? Experiences together, and then this real deep, gut-wrenching, crazy scary honesty. And so you need to make a decision right now whether your marriage is going to die or live because you think you can just leave it here in a holding pattern for, for whatever, and that's, that's death, or you're going to have to make a big choice and... and and tell her something. So let me ask you this. Seven years you've been married, has Melinda shown herself to be a trusting person? I said, oh, absolutely, she is, you know, no doubt. Well, is Melinda a forgiving person? I said, oh, almost to a fault? Really, honestly, it is. She's that way. And he said, well, got to go. Now it's back to you. And so that night I learned a, 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 a very powerful lesson. Was, uh, I, I didn't know this up until that night. I didn't know that shame only has power over you when it's kept secret. Shame can't do anything to you once it's brought out to the light. And so I told Melinda some of my stuff, and she said, okay, now can we move to deeper and closer? I said, oh, that, okay, that, that's, <laughs> that's it? I said, yeah, can we move forward? I said, we absolutely can. You bet. We are. And that's how relationships grow deep. You, you, you know each other more, and then you trust each other more, and then you love each other more, 
and then, you ex- and then you're experiencing deeper things together. Now, listen, the reason I'm telling you that is because we have, we, talk, we come here, right? We do church, not because it's a religion, but because we have a relationship with God. It's a relationship. And a relationship looks like this. You know, you know these people more, right? And then you trust each other more, and then you love each other more, and then you get experiences, more exposure and deeper experiences, deeper intimacy with each other more. And that's why Jesus... In, in our Gospels, we're looking at the Gospel of Mark, the biography from Mark, Jesus' invitation to, the, to these men, the disciples, but also to you and me, okay, the ultimate invitation is, is, will you follow me? That's what he asks. He says, will you follow me? He doesn't say, look, here's my resume, my pedigree, here's everything that you need to know about me, boom, right on the front end. No, he says, like, just come and see, he says. He says, follow me, and here's what's going to happen. You're going you're gonna to learn. We have experiences together. Then you're going to learn to know me. Then you're going to learn to trust me. And then you're going to learn to love me. And then I'm going to give you more experiences. It's a relationship, <laughs> okay? And there's two simple ingredients for a relationship. Common experiences and gut-wrenching, fear-inspiring, real deep honesty. That's what he's requiring from us. And that's, what, what, that's, what he, that's why when we say... We are in a relationship with God. It's not a cliche. You hear that in churches. It's not a cliche. You, you, can, you can draw him into your life or you can push him away. You can draw him into your life and you can start every day. He is with, his spirit dwells within us. And you can say, Lord, I want you to be here today. I want, I want you to I want, I want to feel your presence. Your presence is here. I want to feel that presence today. I want, you, you can wake up tomorrow morning before your feet hit the ground. You say, Lord, I, I want you to be part of this. You bring him to work. You say, Lord, I, at work, I need help. You know, I want, I want your insight on how to resolve some issues at work or solve problems or resolve conflict, whatever it might be. I want, I want, I want your help so that I will stare into other people's souls and not use them, right? Or you can just say, hey, you know what? I'm going to be on the Internet for about 30 minutes, and I'm going to see things I shouldn't see. I'm going to uh, just keep going around until I find myself discontent, wanting something that doesn't belong to me. You know, looking for something that, that's not supposed to be seen by me. So you, you just run along, you know, right? You, it, that's why we can say our spiritual life ebbs and flows. Those are, those are real words. People try to put emotions to their relationship with God. That's, that's a good phrase because it's a relationship. You can draw him in or you can push him out. Now, in our story, in Mark, we're into their follow me part. He asked them to follow me. And we're into that now for seven and a half chapters, maybe as much as three years. And this is where we end up, right here. It's a place called Caesarea Philippi. And I, it's, it's this giant gargantuan cave, if you can see that. And where the cave is, it, it used to have vast amounts of water just rushing out of it during flood season. And it was like vomiting out of that. And it was powerful. And in the Middle East, in the desert, water is life. And in an occultic culture, you worship where that life comes from. And so in the Older Testament, it would be, this would be a shrine to Baal. And in Greek times, it was a shrine to Pan. This is, this is where they thought Pan was birthed in this cave. Pan was a god of, he was half man, half goat. He was disgusting looking, looking and, and you would, he was the god of, of chaos and disorder. And you would you would offer sacrifice there for your own protection from chaos and disorder, and you would cast spells on other people, hoping that they would re- experience panic. That's where you get the word. 
pandemonium. That's him on you. And you can still see there are, there are crevices and, and indentations where these idols were in, in, the, in the times of Jesus, right? That's what was happening there. They were offering sacrifice to him. Now, there's been a couple earthquakes since that period of time, and now there's just a steady stream that comes out. But if you can imagine, they were unable to see how deep this cave went, and, and they called it the, the realm of the dead. When they offered sacrifices, they would offer it to the entrance of the underworld. Could I present to you? The gates of Hades. That's where Jesus is standing. It's a creepy experience. Okay, when you're there, especially back in those days, it was cultic in nature. And Jesus now has had experiences with the 12, the followers. He, they have fed thousands of men and women with just a few loaves and fishes. They have, he, they have seen him walk on water. They've seen him calm a sea. They've seen him heal people. They've had conversations about life, about God, about kingdom, about love, about community. And then, right here, he says to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says this to Peter. He says, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for you did not receive this from flesh and blood. No, no, no. My Father gave this to you from heaven. And I tell you this, Peter, that upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What did Peter say? Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the anointed. You are the Messiah. These are all synonyms. You are the great chosen promised king. You are the one that I have longed for my entire life. My soul is looking for you. All souls have longed for you. You are the fulfillment of our eternal dreams. You are the one who takes us back to Eden. You are the king. You are the king of all things, all time. And, G and Jesus says, you're right. I am a king. Jesus is that king. And because of their time together, and because of their trust together, and because of their love together, Jesus says, you know what? We've had these experiences that led to knowledge, that led to trust, that led to love. I'm going to give you another experience. I'm going to go deeper with our relationship. I'm going to tell you things that I can't tell other people. I'm going to tell you why I tell everyone else when after a healing, don't tell anyone. I'm going to tell you why I say that. Next verse, he says, and then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and then he would be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And he's, listen, he spoke this plainly. That means clearly about these things. Jesus says, oh, I'm a king. I'm a servant. Jesus says, I am a servant as well. Look at, the, look, at, look at the sentence again, these sentences again. Look at, look at the emphasis on the word must. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days raised again. He spoke this clearly. He spoke it plainly. Now, he, he's using must two times, but the two times do not attach just to those things. It's not that he must die and he, and he, or he must suffer and he must die. Because of the way it's kind of a parallel track, those, are, those must are modifying and controlling the whole list. In other words, it is, Jesus is saying, I must suffer many things. I must be rejected by the leadership. I must die, and oh, I must be raised again. I'm going to be clear and plain about this. They know what he's saying. It's must. And why? 
Why, 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 is he not, why is he not saying just, I will? He says, I must. And there's four reasons he must do these things. And the first one is obedience. He must die. He must suffer uh, because that's the will of the Father. And he obeys the Father. If you remember, it says in Philippians, it says, and though uh, Jesus was in the very form of God, did not use that divinity as something to be grasped. He let that go for what purpose? So that he would humble himself to, be point of, to the point of a man and die even death on a cross. And that was his assignment. And so he is serving as a king. He's a serving king and he's serving the father because that was the assignment for the father, from the father. The second way is he, the reason he must do this is because God is just. God is just and justice will prevail. That is the nature of God to do this. And so everyone will have a trial and, and no one is above the law and there is no prejudice in the court. Okay? That, but, but know this, okay? We have all sinned. There is none righteous, not even one. And the cost, the wage of sin is death. And there's a cost for forgiveness. I know it's pretty easy to roll out. Well, you know, just, just forgive. That's not, how, that's not how the economy works. Even, when, even on a right, horizontal between you and I, right, we, forgiveness costs something. If you, if you total my car, then something is lost, something costs. And so you can either restore that, pay for the car to get fixed or get me a new one, or I can forgive you, then I absorb the cost. Right? Now I'm paying for the car or going without a car. But that's just, that's just algebra, right? There's a cost for justice. And Jesus is, uh, at, the, at this expression here, the human race has to deal with this collectively and individually. Who's going who's gonna to pay for justice? And Jesus comes as a serving king and serves humanity and says, I will do that. I can do that as an individual, and I can do that as a divine human and pay for many people's sins, right? He must do this for us to have forgiveness because forgiveness costs something. It costs life. It costs death. So he has to do this. He must do this for the, for the, extinction, for the extinguish of, of shame, for shame to be extinguished, Jesus must suffer many things. There's a lot of ways to kill a man, and then there's a way to humiliate him to death. And so he will be beaten without clothes, and he will be paraded through town while he carries his own, carries his own cross and hangs upon that on a high hill for humiliation's sake, right? for shame's sake. So that we can receive his honor, he must suffer many things and die. He must do this to show the power of his resurrection over death. And that's why he's standing right here at the gates of Hades. And he says, you know what? People come here and they fear death. They have feared death for too long. Death has reigned for this far, but no further. And Jesus says, oh, I must die, and I must be raised again, because I'm going down into the bowels of hell, and I will wreck that place, and I will come back to prove I've been there and won the sacrifice of death and the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's why he must do that. He must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the people in charge of the law, right? He must die and he must be raised again. Jesus says that plainly, clearly. And Peter, in his kindness, doesn't want to embarrass Jesus. And so it says in the next sentence that that Peter took him off to the side and rebuked him and said, no, 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 that can't, no, he said, no, you can't do that. Here's what Jesus says. And when Jesus turned, then Jesus turned Peter around so that all the disciples can hear this. And he says, and he rebuked Peter, says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Wow. After all Peter was doing to kind of keep Jesus from being embarrassed, Jesus spins him around and harshly rebukes him back. Why so? Why so harsh? The first one is because, well, he just says, get behind me, Satan. That's not hyperbole. He's not exaggerating. That is the source of that temptation. It sounds very familiar to Jesus. You can have a crown without a cross. The only one saying that is the devil himself. That's Satan speaking. This isn't the first time he's heard it. In, in the desert, that's what the, those were the temptations in the desert. Turn the rock, right, into bread. Bon appetit. Well, then you wouldn't be serving the will of the Father and, and did not use his divinity as something to be grasped. No, he's going to grasp it all right. You can have that crown without the cross. Jesus won't have any part of it. He'll hear it again. The last temptation of Christ is you've saved others, now save yourself. Oh, I can. <laughs> I could call in a legion of angels. We'll start this whole thing over but then I wouldn't be a servant to the will of the Father. So that's why he calls this utterance from Satan. It is. And the second reason he, he uh, reproves him and rebukes him in such a harsh way is because this is, this is what following means. Okay, we're going to do the fundamentals of following. We're gonna, let me try to explain a single word to you. Follow. He says, Follow me, okay? And so, so, so far, here's what follow me has gotten us to. Follow me has gotten us to these experiences together that they learned. Peter knew, he became to know who he was, right? And, and he became to trust him, and he became to love him, and he came to the conclusion that he was Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen king. What does it mean to follow a king? Follow means where he goes, you go. Am I, did I lose anybody? Follow means where he goes, you go. Where the king says something, you do what you're told. You don't rebuke the king. You don't correct the king. He said it clearly. He meant what he said. And Peter says, you're wrong. That's not following. Let me try to be clear. Okay? Let's just make it, uh, let's make it a Texan thing. Okay? Jesus says to Peter, follow me. We're going to Juarez. <laughs> And Peter kindly takes him to the side and rebukes him and says, we're not going to Juarez. You want to go to Cabo San Lucas? <laughs> and Jesus pulls everybody around. He goes, no, 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 no. This guy's wrong. I said Juarez. What I meant was across the border from El Paso, Juarez. I'm clear. I'm plain. I'm going there. If you don't go there, you're not following right? If you don't go there, you're not following. At that point, Peter's not following. Here's 
Here's our quick little application up to this point, right? Right? When we look at a passage, I, I don't know if you've gotten to the point where, you know, there's, there's plenty of passages that are confusing. You might not know what they mean. You know what? Those don't bug me. Okay? Honestly, there's some. I, they don't bug me. Here's the ones that bug me. The ones that are plain and clear where Jesus says, follow, and this is where he's going. When you read a passage of Scripture and it says to do something and you don't, you're rebuking the king. When the Bible says to do something plain and clear and you don't go there, you're not following. Okay? I mean, I'm, just trying to, I'm just trying to define some terms here. Okay? The passage is clear. You're rebuking the Messiah. Now, watch how nicely what he says makes perfect sense and, and what follows? What does he say? He says, I'm going to Jerusalem to find a cross where I'll suffer and die. And, and he says, follow me. So, therefore, it makes sense that verse 34 would follow. Verse 33, he says, so Jesus called the crowd, all the crowd around him, okay, along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow me. See? I mean, it makes perfect sense. I'm, just, I'm going there, and you're following me, so you could come with me with your cross. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever wants to lo- whoever wants loses their life for me or for the gospel's sake, you're going to save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Or can anyone give, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Well, it's just, it, this is so simple, right? I am the king. I am going to the cross. You are following me. So you're going to the cross. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. That's what following looks like. So what does that mean, take up your cross, deny yourself? It means, it means our, our souls are bent and demented towards selfishness. We're always right. We get our way, sometimes passively, sometimes aggressively. We're trying to win. And all those things, those rights, the constitutional right to happiness, the, um, right, uh, the entitlements that we feel like we have, and so, sometimes we don't even know we have them until they're threatened or taken away. He says those are the things. The selfish you needs to die so that the selfless you can be replaced. That's, how, that's what he means by that. And so, look, sometimes it's hard to know what those are until, I mean, God's going to send waves of experiences with this so that you can know him more and love him more and trust him more. But I, I remember personally, you probably did this too, that firstborn child crying all night, and you never had this thought before, but you thought, I have a right to a good night's sleep. Now, the baby's doing what babies do, so there's no harm or foul there. But I'm th- the anger that you have when your sleep is disruptive is your right crying out to be crucified. When you have teenagers, now we have babies crying, but they're bigger than you, and you're afraid or angry, that is your illusion of control needing to be crucified. See, that, that's all these, we have life experiences together with the Lord, and he's trying to say, ooh, you could kill that. That would be a good thing to die to. Uh, in a positive way, you'll see some people, you might know someone, or you might, someone who has suffered long and well, there, there's a tranquility with them because they have long given up the, right, a desire to be happy. They would rather be holy. 
And so you can, you can just see in their souls so much has been crucified, so much has been dealt dead that, they, that they've given over their old self and taken on this new self. Here's what the king says. The king says, this is how it works. You want to be reborn, you've got to be unborn. You want to be resurrected, you're going to have to die first. I'm going to Jerusalem. Well, I will suffer many things. I will be rejected by the people in authority. I will die and I will be raised again. If you know me, you'll trust me, and you'll love me, and you'll follow me. Now, here's the strange part of this story. Stay with us. Here's the strange part of the story. They go with him. These men, they leave with him. At this point, there's a major pivot in the book, and he's, he's turning towards Jerusalem, and he's towards this must destiny. And at this point, the 12 follow him, and they don't understand it. They definitely don't like it. But because they have, they have made this choice, now look, at, look what happens when you, know, when you, follow, you experience something with someone, and then you know them, and then you start trusting them, and then you love them. They give you another experience. They receive this as a gift of following more intimacy with God like nothing else ever has experienced in all of mankind. This is what happens, chapter 9, verse 2. And six days after following Jesus, right, following Jesus to Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John with him led him up to the high mountain where they were all alone. And then he was transfigured before him, and his clothes became dazzling white, like like whiter than anyone in the world could ever have bleached them. And then appeared before them was Elijah and Moses who were talking to Jesus. Moses, the Old Testament is, is broken into two parts, law and prophet. And Moses is the father of the law. And Elijah is the father of all the, of all the prophets. And so it's, it's what, what's happening here is the, the fullness of all revelation is staring at Jesus in this, in this transfiguration mode, right? Just this beaming mode, and they are showing that all revelation from God is culminated into this man, this king, this servant king. And then, if that were not enough, this is what happens. The Father speaks, and out of the cloud appeared to cover them, and a voice came from the cloud and said, this is my son, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And those three men fall face down, and it says, and they were terrified. They were terrified. Know this. God, God progressively reveals himself to you when you're ready to hear it. God progressively reveals himself to you when you're ready to hear it. These three men have experienced something no one else has ever experienced. They were able to see this, this bright as the sun fullness of Jesus on this planet. They were able to hear the approval of the Father saying, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. They were able to fall face down because it was beyond their comprehension. And in terror, that's another word for worship. They experienced this worship First of all, and know this, because they had picked up their cross and they'd been carrying it for six days. You can't get to that mountain without a cross. You can't get there by rebuking Jesus and, and, and trying to get him to go to Cabo, San Lucas. You get there by going to Juarez with him. You get there by denying yourself. 
taking up your cross and dying. Intimacy with God comes by having two things, experiences together and this gut-wrenching, fear-inspiring, vulnerable truth and honesty. They did that. This was their prize. God reveals himself to you in progressive ways as you're able, as you follow. That's what intimacy is all about. It's a relationship, you guys. It's a relationship. It didn't end on this mountaintop. They kept going to Jerusalem where they had another tender, intimate moment with Jesus. This is called the Lord's Table. If you're one of the ushers, if you'll go back and, and get the elements. And, guys, just pass them out as soon as you get to your place. It would be awesome. And you know what? Let me, let me, let me kind of say one second. Here's how we do communion here, okay, just so that you know. One, you know, you're, we'd love you to join us. It doesn't, you don't have to be a member of this church. If, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've heard that definition. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and as much as it's up to you, you're a good with all men, you know, that says that, you, you know, if you're having conflict with other people, just like, hey, just pass this time and, and move on to the next. You'll get communion again. Make things right, right? It's communion. The second thing is, is if you'll pass the elements out, just hold them. We'll take the bread first all together because it's communal, and then we'll take the wine together. Let me, let me get back to the story here because Jesus, Jesus takes them from Mount figure, of Transfiguration, and then he takes, he takes them to Jerusalem. What do you do with intimate friends you eat with them. You dine with them. And this meal, oh, it's a closed meal. It's invitation only. It's just for the few, the select, the ones that have experienced with him, right, that know him, that trust him, that love him. And, he's, and he says, look, guys, this is the Passover meal. For centuries, I've been saying to people, follow me. Just follow me. And I said that to Israel when she was born. She was in captivity in Egypt. And I said, justice will now come to Egypt. But if you follow me, if you follow me, I will take you out of there and my justice will pass over you and I will, re I will lead you through a parted sea and you will become my adopted child. I will lead you out of justice and into adoption. That's what this is about. That's what this meal is about. When Jesus took the bread, he said, this bread, it's my body. It'll be broken for you. It must be broken for you. You know, when, <laughs> I love this part of the story. When the men were face down and they were in terror, Jesus went over to them and he touched each one of them and he said, he said, don't be afraid. Get up. Don't be afraid get up. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. What are his first words? Don't be afraid. Get up. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's think about that while we wait to pass out all the elements. I'll be right back.
Let's take that bread together. On the same night, same Passover meal, he takes this cup. He said, it's going to be a blood covenant. It'll be my blood. It'll be my blood that it'll be shed. It must be my blood. It must be. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. When? All the time. Where? Everywhere you go. Look, let's, let's communion meal. Let's, let's do this. Would you do this for intimacy? It's experience and honesty. Let's, let's say, let's invite him here. I want, I want you to be part of this moment. Lord, I want you to be part of tomorrow before your feet at the floor. You say, Lord, I want you to be part of this day. I want to invite you into this work experience. I want to invite you into this conversation. Lord, I am so focused inward. I need you, your spirit, to turn me out so I can see the souls of the people that I run into, that I can enjoy them and I can serve them. Listen to him. Listen to him all the time, everywhere. Let's think on those things. Be right back. Let's share the cup together with our king. This was such an, an important, intimate event that Jesus said, listen, I want you to keep doing that. Whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you do this until I return in glory. You know, uh, Jesus' transfiguration, some have thought, we, we don't know what we get in that glory. After all is said and done, after the final judgment, apparently we get a new glorified body because this body, it can never inherit eternity, right? The mortal can't inherit immortality, right? This can't endure the holiness of God. And so we get new bodies. And some have thought that this transfiguration of Jesus is a picture of what we might have. And that's why, for example, uh, in Amazing Grace, it starts off that he saved a wretch like me. That's, that's me. But how does it end? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright, sh shining like the sun, right? We are, we are children of the light. It's this picture of you and me, us together. As C.S. Lewis said in, in, in The Weight of Glory, that if we saw each other for who we really are, we would, the souls, we're not, we're not bodies with souls, we're souls with bad bodies. If we saw that, we would be inclined to worship. And so we long for that day. Let's, let's pray with that hope in mind.
this promise from God. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you, we love you because you first loved us. You started this. While we were enemies, you reconciled us to you. You died for us. You had to. And Lord, we are grateful for your obedience to the Father, for your love for, the, for your children, for your desire to give us honor instead of shame and your conquest of the grave. We are grateful for that. Lord Jesus, I pray until the day we see you, till the day we get this glorified body that might even shine like a thousand suns, you know, that, that we would live in relationship with you, that we would pursue you, that we would not advise you or rebuke you. We would follow you. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. For more information about Grace, visit our website at grace360.org.